CBDC is the only bank dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs. That's why we're proud to support women entrepreneurs with the Thrive Podcast, providing startup women with the support and resources they need to start and grow their business. Here to connect you with the leading Canadian organizations helping women entrepreneurs. It's Janice McDonald on the Thrive Podcast. You're listening to the Thrive Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, a show inspiring, connecting, and educating women entrepreneurs across Canada. On this show, we connect you with leading innovators, change makers, and organizations helping women to own it in entrepreneurship. The Thrive Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community and voice for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. This podcast is presented in partnership with Business Development Bank of Canada, the only bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcasts to subscribe to the Thrive community and subscribe to listen to this podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. I'm your host, Janice McDonald, president of the Beacon Agency and Startup Canada's ambassador for women entrepreneurs. We are thrilled to have Petra Kasun much on the show today. Petra is the founder of Evolution, a B Corp certified enterprise which aims to integrate feminist work into entrepreneurship and innovation ecosystems. Evolution offers gender lens based incubator design, strategy, and programming services. Evolution also publishes Lisbeth, an online magazine that serves as the voice of the growing entrepreneurial feminist community. Petra's last venture, Fifth Town Artisan Cheese, is the world's first platinum, LEED-certified dairy, and Canada's eighth registered B Corp. It won the Premier's Award for Agri-Food Innovation in 2010, along with 32 product awards in Canada and the U.S. Welcome to the show, Petra. Hi, Janice. I'm happy to be here. So what's the key message you hope our listeners take away from our conversation today? Well, I know that Startup Canada is, you know, is all about startups and entrepreneurs. And it's a fabulous, um, it's a fabulous enterprise and uh, does a lot for entrepreneurs. Uh, What I want them to take away, though, is I feel that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs have an obligation to not just worry about their own enterprise, but also uh, do their part in sort of advancing, advancing the system. So the, the system of supports ecosystems that are there to support entrepreneurs and make sure they're inclusive and involve everyone. So, yeah, so I would like people to come away thinking about as as I am an entrepreneur, but I'm also a steward and I'm also a citizen of these ecosystems which are there to help us, but they help some more than others. So... You are involved with benefit corporations, otherwise known as B Corps, and you have taken that journey. You're a certified B Corp enterprise. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so this is actually my second time uh, going for and being B Corp certified. The dairy, um, in the early days of B Corporations, uh, the f- very first meeting was held at Mars in downtown Toronto, uh, mm-hmm. one of our, our, in Ontario, and there were only 30 people there. And I thought this was a wonderful, I was looking for a way to certify um, and measure. The important thing is not just the certification, but also it gives you a framework for measuring how you're doing against your, you know, desired sustainability goals. And we adopted it right away. I thought it was terrific. We were Canada's eighth B corporation and at the time had the highest score. Um, and so I became very familiar with it. And of course, when we launched Evolution, it was kind of a natural thing for me to to um, once again engage with B Corp and become certified. So I'm familiar with it, but everybody may not be. So do you want to just talk a little bit more about, you know, what it actually means and why it's important to you? Yeah, so B Corp is actually a certification program that allows, that basically asks businesses to report on five or six different categories of variables. And you basically benchmark your business against best practices in categories like uh, governance, which looks at, you know, um, how are you organized, uh, who's ma- who's making decisions, uh, your board, um, you know, how transparent are you with your reporting and that sort of thing. There's another category for community wellness. Um, there's categories for uh, sustainability, so how you manage your energy and uh, waste, water, all of those things. Um, and without running through the whole list of categories, um, mm-hmm. what what, how B Corp is set up is actually all the criteria under B Corp. So think all the criteria under B Corp come from the global impact investment standards and also um, SROI, which is another standard. So these the benchmarks and the metrics that they have curated, essentially it's a list of curated metrics that fit with the larger framework around the impact investing and, and social um, impact space. And uh, they put that all together so that as a business, you don't have to figure that out. And you can also benchmark. So you benchmark your performance against those measures. You get a score and you also are able to see how well you do against other businesses, which then can sets up the idea that you want to improve on some or you know, one or some or many measures year over year. So you keep getting better. So that's what it is. It's a certification. It often gets confused with benefit corporation, which is an entirely different thing. Benefit corporation is a actually different legal form. It's a hybrid legal form. Uh, we don't have one of those in Ontario. And there are facsimiles to that in BC, the, the um, CICs, and also in Nova Scotia coming around. I'm not sure they've passed that legislation yet. I'd have to check. But Ontario hasn't had that conversation. And in some ways, B Corps has become a proxy for being um, recognized as a social enterprise. But you have to be a for-profit entity to be eligible for B Corp certification. That is a very comprehensive, but easy to understand. There's no way I could have done it that well. It's amazing. Amazing. So what's entrepreneurial feminism and why is it important to you? Yeah, so entrepreneurial feminism, one of my observations was that we weren't getting, we were not 
how would I put it? We needed to do more to address some of the gender inequities in the entrepreneurship and, and innovation space. And this came from my experience running an incubator, uh, serving as an executive director at the Ontario College of Art and Design University, and then later uh, spending more time uh, basically supporting incubators and their work and noticing that we were too reliant and incubator spaces were a little heavily on the masculine side and also, mm-hmm. um, you know, tended to use materials that were developed by uh, mostly men in terms of tools mm-hmm. and perspectives and, uh, you know, venture design tools, that sort of thing. Everyone's familiar with Osterwalder, uh, but probably mm-hmm. not many people are familiar with the feminist uh, business model canvas. Uh, like, for example, you don't see that sort of uh, being used in incubator spaces. And obviously, those are not gendered tools. Anybody can use them. It's not just for women, but they re- they reflect a different perspective on uh, on venture creation. Can so, you pause there for a sec because you brought up something that I think is really interesting. And I don't want it to slip by. Uh, feminist business model canvas. Tell us how that's different from the regular business model canvas. Yeah, sure. So the regular business model canvas, you know, developed by Alex Osterwalder was actually quite extremely innovative um, in its day because up until then, people were designing businesses by following business plan templates. What he brought Mm -hmm. to the table was taking most of the decision areas of a business and putting it on one page in boxes. And Mm -hmm. if you look at his template, um, it's very rudimentary. It's, you know, what is your business? What's your your Mm -hmm. vision, mission? What is your business? It's very much based on MBAs style, business school style thinking around business. Uh, here's your mm-hmm. customers. Here's your product, you know, cost, revenues. I, you know, most people who have worked with it will understand this. However, it doesn't ask, uh, it doesn't ask other questions. So um, the feminist business model canvas looks at venture creation and also the elements that you want to create in there from a a very different perspective. It asks questions like, what are some of the expressive needs you're you're considering, uh, you know, considering creating with the products and and the company that you're you're building? So what is an expressive need? It's emotion. And one of the things um, that isn't asked in the Osterwalder thing is what kind of emotions are you hoping to, uh, you know, your customers and your stakeholders to feel when they're engaging with your company or with your product to, and use that as an de- insight for design and sort of how you might operationalize your venture. So the feminist business model canvas, you've given us a good sense of what it is, but what are those additional values that are incorporated in it? Okay, so the five values that it's actually based upon are whole humanness, the idea that as entrepreneurs, we bring our whole selves to a project, to creating ventures and to operating and growing it. So how is that different? Um, in the Osterwalder canvas, that's not part of what you're thinking about. And when, when we often see incubators working with entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs are often asked to um keep their personal life uh, and their person, their whole selves, whether, uh, you know, whether that's their family life or whatever outside, out the outside of the door, um, especially also in the investor space, they're expected to be entrepreneurs and nothing else. So we look at it from a whole humanist point of view, because we, you know, there's an old saying in the it's a famous saying in the feminist space around how the personal is political, and uh, we look at it as entrepreneurship is extremely personal, and uh, entrepreneurship is also extremely political, and these things shape your venture creation um, 
thinking. Another one is generativity. So the idea that um, you look at your externalities, you don't just build a product. You also look outside and say, well, what is building my product and service doing to other ecosystems around me and other entities around me who is going to be affected by this and and perhaps dislocated by this and how can we perhaps um, minimize the effect the negative effects of that so a, a classic example would be is if uber was a feminist business and looked at generativity they might have sort of said instead of thinking about just you know you kind of usurping taxi cab jobs they might have thought we know that this that our product and our service is going to have this impact. How can we uh, soften that? How can we work with the cab drivers to perhaps, um, you know, ease the transitions and make the changes? So the idea is more about working with the ecosystem in which your businesses uh, exist. Mm-hmm. And that's not questions asked by Osterwalder. I'll give you another example, interdependence. That may be more familiar to people. That's the idea that nobody does entrepreneurship alone or builds ventures alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, mapping out your ecosystem and looking at its balance and who's there and who's not there and who should be there is not part of what often gets done. It sometimes gets done in a different place. Uh, also, of course, importantly, is we l- start with equality and inclusion from the very beginning in, in in business design. And that's not, again, something you would find in Osterwalder. And, you know, how do you design for inclusion in your enterprise from the get-go, whether it's your product or your service? So here's an example of what would be uh, brought to the surface from that. Uh, many people obviously start, you know, putting up websites and doing marketing language. What is your marketing language to heteronormative? Is, you know, are you it being inclusive enough in your language? Um, and we, you know, for example, we call it queering your business language. And um, things like that are things that are brought out through the Feminist Business Model Canvas. One last one is agency, and that's looking at power relationships and uh, analyzing power relationships and understanding where those power relationships might be positive or where they might be negative. And of course, you know, sort of um, doing intervening where things might be negative. Um and I can give you an example of that. If, for example, your business is going to be dealing with, um, you know, a project teams where they're very diverse, but, for example, maybe someone has a background of not questioning authority um, and how, how within your organization are you dealing with that to make sure that that person feels agency, has the opportunity to be heard, feels like they're included, and uh, doesn't end up being sort of um, sidelined just because culturally there may be some... Um, you know, some background there that per, that inhibits their ability to uh, speak their mind in the presence of someone they perceive to be more important or higher authority than, than they are. So those are the five areas. And uh, that's just an example of how it's different. And, um, and for people yeah, who so, want to know more about it, where do they where do they go? Yeah, so this canvas was developed by C.B. Harkwell and Lex Schroeder out of uh, New, uh, New York. And uh, you can find it at uh, feministsatwork.com. So just spell it out the way I've said it. And uh, there's a feminist business model toolkit there. And I'll tell you a li- an interesting story where at least I think it's interesting. And it t- speaks to the importance of tools um, and how it shapes what we do. So uh, we did a little experiment uh, at Rotman with a uh, class who had never been at the MBA school, who hadn't been, they were there to do uh, 
design, a design, gender design class, but they had never been exposed uh, to the Osterwalder canvas. So we did little experiments um, where we asked one third of the room to to work with the Osterwalder canvas. We asked another third of the room to work with the flourishing business model canvas, which is very green or eco oriented. Mm -hmm. And then we asked the other third of the room to work with the feminist business model canvas. So the teams were male and female um, and everything in between. And they were told to design a lemonade stand business. (laughs) So everybody had a simple business Mm -hmm. to design. So the groups worked together and, or like separately. And the three results, the outcomes were entirely different. And just to highlight that, the Osterwalder ones did a pretty basic, you know, this is our lemonade. uh, It's, you know, $1.50. And they had all the basic business framework there. The flourishing business model canvas uh, ones, which focused on, on, um, which encouraged focusing on on green stuff, looked at, you know, the effect of climate change on lemon supply (laughs) and things like that and pricing. And then said, we're just serving water now. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) There are no lemons. And uh, they, and of course, building strategies for that into their thinking around their venture ventures design, because part of that was then as a venture who depends on lemons, how do we help make sure there's lemons in the future, right? right? So that becomes part of your business strategy. And on the last one, the last group with the feminist business, and we didn't give them any direction. The last group started to talk about how they would source their lemons from women uh, owned farms. (laughs) And, um, you know, so I'm just giving you some examples about how the tools uh, really d- are critical in how the master's house is designed. Mm-hmm. And I uh, personally think that we are too dependent on one perspective mm-hmm. uh, and use very, you know, use a set of tools that, you know, they ha- all have been created by men, including um, including um the lean startup method, nothing wrong with them. They're great. They're awesome, but they're not the only tools and entrepreneurs need often can benefit from looking at their business through different lenses and they learn new things and identify different types of opportunities by doing that. And we know also that, um, that a lot of the times women entrepreneurs and their approach can feel left mm-hmm. behind by when they're being measured or, or forced to use those tools that somehow they feel like mm, that doesn't quite resonate with me. Uh, completely. And we've, you know, we've run feminist business model Campbell workshops and the feedback we always get is, oh my God, this, this is how I want to go about designing my business because it incorporates my priorities and the way my values and the way I like to develop businesses um, up at the get go. I don't have to add it in later. And uh, mostly what happens at the workshops is people say, oh my God, this was too short. One day is not long <laughs> enough. I need more. Do more. Um, yeah. So I would love to see every incubator and uh, accelerator start thinking about different, you know, sort of thinking about some of the other tools that are out there. And and this is and incorporating them for the benefit of all. So and this is what I find interesting about feminist uh, pedagogy uh, uh, and practices and um, and theory is that feminism over over time has developed a a huge, uh, I guess I would call it a, a, you know, warehouse of 
uh, interesting ideas about ways of going about things that advance inclusion and equality and uh, equity, which really business doesn't tap into. Mm-hmm. Um, they're mostly looking at numbers. Uh, for example, uh, how many women on a bo- on boards, or how you know how many of these do we have, and how many? And that's great. That's sort of like a first step. It's sort of like a Stone Age. Uh, answer to gender equality for mm-hmm. now, and you have to get there. But I think the next step, if you ask me, is that the uh, re-engagement with, uh, and, and I would say rediscovery or discovery in the first place for some, of some of the amazing work that feminist theory theorists and uh, thought leaders have done around organizational design and um, and tools for how to, how to bring that into place, um, I think should be part of the curriculum or part of the programming that incubators and accelerators offer. Offer. The last thing I'll say about that is um, I would happen to be at an event uh, for women in food and I ran into Christina Zeidler, who is the founder and creator of the Gladstone Hotel here in Toronto. It's mm-hmm. a boutique hotel mm-hmm. that's amazing. And she was telling me she had just uh, with her staff uh Feminized, or, you know, feministed, feministed. I don't even know if that's the right word. <laughs> okay. But she, they've taken their entire operating manual and decided to rewrite it from a feminist perspective. To and the purpose was to get everybody on the same page around inclusion and diversity, but also give them the language and the tools so that uh, they knew how to go about doing it. So we're hoping to do an interview with her around that because that's an example of feminist business practice or feminist theory and practice and pedagogy in in uh, in you know in use and I I'm just going to stop there because I don't know how much time we have but uh, we can more things to cover for sure what what, so tell us what's the difference between entrepreneurial feminism and feminist entrepreneurship so entrepreneurial feminism is about kind of using discovering tools like I was saying and putting them into practice in your entrepreneurship uh, work and your business so that could mean for example someone whose businesses who may not be specifically um, so about advancing women, girls, and, and, and other gender minorities like trans, queer, two-spirited, and intersex, and so on. Um, but they're using femi- they're integrating feminist uh, ideas into their business practice. The feminist entrepreneurs go a step further. They're basically people of all genders who build specific ventures that advance women and girls, and again, all other uh, genders or, or minority genders. And I'll give you a couple of examples because. Um, this, this will help. Uh, Luna Pads out of BC, uh, some of your uh, listeners might know them, founded by Madeline Shaw, runs it specifically. And it was found, it is actually a feminist business because they addressed issues around uh, that women were experiencing around menstruation. And their goal was to normalize the conversation around menstruation. Uh, other examples on a male feminist side is the White Ribbon Campaign and its consulting offshoot, Parker Consulting. So here's a business that was founded by a male feminist. Other examples are Erin Fogel's Venus Fest, a feminist music festival, Toronto News Girls Boxing Club. Um, I even put Toronto's Oasis Aqua Lounge in there and City of Women, which is a mapping exercise for trying to map the city of Toronto for uh, identify where all the feminist businesses are and basically putting them, uh, pinning them on a, on a specific map. And uh, Women on the Move, Shecosystem and so on. So all of those businesses, the, the founders of those businesses, mm-hmm. uh, CEO and so forth, all have specifically set out to create businesses that 
whose mission it is to advance women and girls, whereas entrepreneurial feminists are, are more about, um, they might have a business that has nothing to do with advancing women and girls, but they're still incorporating feminist practice into their enterprise. So tell us about evolution. How does it support women entrepreneurs and women in innovation? Right. So evolution is basically a consulting practice. And what we do is we at, we do a lot of advocacy work for um, for women in the incubators and accelerator spaces, and women in innovation, women who, who are uh, looking to become entrepreneurs. We help incubators and accelerator leaders, uh, managers figure out how to improve their gender, um, their gender Outcomes and mm-hmm. those outcomes are two things. One is ha- getting more women into their space mm-hmm. because they are, you know, incubators and accelerators are amazing support systems for entrepreneurs. Anybody who's an entrepreneur should take advantage of those that exist in their, in their area. But a lot of women don't because they feel alienated mm-hmm. once they come into the space. It may feel very masculine. It, they may not feel welcome. They feel like they're not, you know, towing the line because they've got to go home at three thirty to pick up their kids. Right. That sort of thing. So there's two things. One is yes, you need to get more women into the space, but uh, that's not going to happen unless you actually change the space. So we're also thinking about retention of women in the space because the retention side, lots of women leave and they say, this is not for me. Mm -hmm. So what evolution does is try to help, help the people running these spaces fix that. Okay. That's very exciting. And what about Lizbeth? What makes it different from other business publications? Oh, (laughs) well, we are basically the only uh, feminist business uh, media company that I could come across. I'll I'll challenge anybody to Google. (laughs) There are other feminist business uh, businesses out there, of course, but we're the only media uh, company magazine that sort of has set out to be the voice for this community, which we feel and have noticed is growing substantially. There are more and more businesses being created uh, around the idea of, you know, how do I advance inclusion, equity, and um, equality for disadvantaged groups? And And so we noticed this community growing. There wasn't a voice for them. There wasn't a place where they could share their ideas or we could kind of celebrate uh, those who are have started and are growing. So the community didn't have a narrative and it didn't have a a place to go. And that's how Elizabeth actually came about, because we said, um, hey, there's a lot of us and we're not getting together and we don't have a place to go where we can read about how to do this better, what other things are out there. Um, And that's how really Elizabeth was born. So what's your advice for our listeners who want to integrate their feminist work into entrepreneurship? My advice, if they are really familiar with, you know, they've gone, they're really well educated on feminist practice. Mm -hmm. um, I would say just go and do it. Mm -hmm. For those who are interested in it as a way of getting into a deeper conversation around diversity and inclusion, um, I would recommend that they start uh, understanding and and looking at feminist practice theory and pedagogy uh, and learning about it. That's the start because I feel, uh, and not just feel, but also observe that um, too many people don't realize this reservoir of brilliant ideas exist. And uh, just like with the sustainability movement, I kind of liken the feminist, uh, you know, the time has come for this this type of work to surface in business is back in the early 2000s when Al Gore made his, uh, you know, um, you know, sort of really uh, came up with the 
uh, or sort of advanced the environmental movement mm-hmm. with his movie um, and his talks. Uh, same thing happening now in this time, in this very special time for uh, for the gender conversation. I think the same thing can happen in the um, same thing can happen. So in the sustainability space, all of, all of a sudden, companies took sustainability seriously. Yes. You know, up until then, the environmental movement was, you know, was not, was kind of off to the side. Yep. And all of a sudden, we had cor- corporate social responsibility. Everybody was figuring out how to how to make their businesses more sustainable. I think the next, and, and actually, many did. Like, we've, uh, we've come a long way over 10, 15 years on the sustainability side. There isn't a company today, I don't think. I mean, there probably is, but most aware companies all have sustainability practice uh, guidelines and things like that going in their company and they have committees and all those kinds of things. Um, When it comes to feminist business practice, I think that's the next version of the sustainability wave. And in 10, 15 years from now, Mm -hmm. companies will all have integrated feminist business practice into their companies, which will make them more welcoming. And I guess, you know, it'll make... I think it'll advance their diversity inclusion initiatives and their gender balance initiatives by a ton because that's what this body of knowledge was designed to do and to figure out. And so for those that are looking for, you know, where where are these resources available for them? What what can where can you point them to, Patra? Other than Lisbeth? <laughs> uh, well, okay, so Lisbeth and then and then I would highly suggest um so you know, there is how can I say there is no book uh, at the moment that says here are feminist business practice tools. You, it's like a a big um, reservoir of of material, but it hasn't been sifted through for business. And I think that's part of the knowledge making work that we're trying to do in the feminist um, you know feminist entrepreneurship space, uh, along with Dr. Barbara Orser at Telfer uh, University at the uh, Telfer Manage- School of Management at uh, University of Ottawa. So we're figuring that out. But there are a number of tools. There are thought leaders. Um, so do you want to tell us would, some others? So yeah, of course where we to know. do it. I know yeah. it's not like one place. You can't go to one place, but, um, you can go to Elizabeth. I am going to say this to make us unique. It was, we have book lists, we have reading lists. We also publish and, and, uh, put out to our readers, uh, research that we think is highly relevant. For example, in the newsletter tomorrow is an article is a piece of research about, um, homo social activity, which is basically the Christmas, the Christmas party the holiday party scene at this time of year and how companies could use it as an opportunity to shift uh, the gender conversation in their companies. It's a brilliant piece of academic work that was done uh, like five years ago, but I'll bet you no one's seen it. Mm. So what part of what we do is we we will bring that out and and offer the links to our readers to say, hey, hey here's something. If you're having office parties over the holiday season um, and arranging them, here's some awesome ideas as to how you can look at at them from a gendered point of view and maybe make some progress there because often you know those spaces often it's the personal or the assistance group that organizes these parties um you know i won't get into the whole things that i'm not talking about madman style parties but you know there's an opportunity there to really model some different ideas and i think that's what was so great out of that article and that's the kind of stuff we put out on lisbeth it's been a fascinating conversation we've had today with patra because soon much. She is from Evolution, from Lisbeth Media, and she is an expert in, well, entrepreneurial feminism, feminist entrepreneurship, 
uh, how to integrate feminist work into entrepreneurship, the tools she shared with us that are out there and why everyone should be a feminist entrepreneur. It's been a delight speaking to you today, Patra, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Thrive Podcast, a show inspiring, connecting, and educating women entrepreneurs across Canada. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to find resources designed to support thriving women-owned businesses across Canada. And visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast hosted by Rivers Corbett. And to learn about the latest startup community news and events, like our popular startup chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Until next time, I'm Janice McDonald, leaving you now with a sneak peek of our next episode. So this is Elaine Orr from balancesheets.ca and you're listening to the ThriveBot podcast with Janice McDonald. This is wonderful. And so if we think about in terms of next steps, so if we look at our, our startup entrepreneurs who now gotten themselves, they've streamlined their financial management because they're working with Elaine, you, <laughs> and you've got them all ship shape. Now, you know, so, but what's that tipping point when they should start outsourcing or hiring talent to take over their finances? What, you know, what in an ideal world, what would you advise people? Tell us the step. Ideally, I think um, a professional should handle your finances right from the start. Okay. And so that's an important thing for people to hear. Um, I I know sometimes talking to uh, new entrepreneurs, and that could be of any age and, and you know, but n- new to this pursuit, they say, well, you know, I'm not generating any income. So that's their first, you know, objection. But yet we know that, I'm likely it's going to cost them more down the line, won't it? it you know, it, it will. And if you don't have the advice of an accounting professional, then, you know, especially about things like taxes and, and payroll source deductions, you may end up, so you may end up being penalties and interest to the government because you missed filing deadlines and you forgot to send them their share of the money that you collected. Um, and the other thing is that you may end up missing deductions that you didn't realize you would be able to claim, um, especially things that didn't go through the business bank account yet, you know, things that you paid for yourself. So, yeah, but but realistically, you know, I know that people, they, they start businesses on a, on a shoestring, you know, and, and often, um, often there's a, what, what I think of as, as, you know, like a, oh my goodness, it works moment because they, you know, okay, I'm not, I'm not usually that polite about it, but you know, it's like this. There's usually this holy moment when you think, okay, I, you know, I so I started this and I thought there might be some demand for it, but I still had my job and I wasn't taking it very seriously. And now I'm being flooded and my business has absolutely gone off the ground and I can't handle the bookkeeping anymore. And I've got no idea what I'm doing. And I know for a fact, I don't have that much money in my bank that QuickBooks says that I do, you know. <laughs> So, so there often is that moment where they go, I didn't, you know, I I thought I could do this and I can't do this. But, you know, if 
when people do start off in business, um, they should know that there's going to be some costs that are, are unavoidable to starting the business. And one of them might be business cards, one of them might be your website, but the other one should be buy some time with an accounting professional who can tell you all of this stuff and hopefully the, the best thing is to set up your your accounting system for you, train you in how to use it and then check in with you every now and again. 